why don't we take a few moments just in the stillness and quietness as the band plays behind us and let's just personally contemplate what the name of Jesus means to us. Holy Father, your son's name, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. It means our salvation. It means our access to you. It means our power and strength day by day. It means our hope for our families. It means our future. It means the God of the ages is with us. It means mercy. It means forgiveness. Jesus. Oh God, we pray that your son will be our theme today and that every day of our lives we would live under the banner of the name Jesus. That we will be, as the Apostle Paul said, not ashamed of the gospel, for it's about Jesus, who is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. How we bless your name, Father, for Jesus. Now, Lord, speak, we pray today. May his voice, not my voice, may his heart, not my heart, be what we hear and feel and sense today. Take us to where you want us to be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning, fellowship. It's a joy to be back from the motherland, Africa. I got back in yesterday morning from uh, Cape Town, South Africa. And I don't know if this is the boys' club or the church, but I'm glad to be here. But, uh, my jet lag has been talking to me. Actually, it will get me a little later this afternoon. But I just want to thank all of you for praying and uh, what an incredible experience I had. I, I was a part of the uh, Lausanne Congress on World Evangelism. Um, there were 5,000 delegates from over 60 countries around the world. And uh, thank you. And, uh, you know, I, I was on the plane flying back uh, yesterday, 16 hours back from Cape Town. And I was trying to get my heart and my head around what God said to me. And I made this long list of the things that impacted me. And, and I'm still processing this. But I, I got to tell you, I am, um, I'm profoundly overwhelmed in a good sense by what I saw. And uh, I just, as I walked through this massive convention center there where we met and saw these brothers and sisters from different lands and the sacrifices that they had to make in order to be there and how they're preaching the gospel to uh, Muslims in the Middle East and uh, many you can't say publicly what countries that they came from and they were there and, and uh, hearing the stories and, and realizing that uh, we're called to something that's greater and bigger than ourselves 
it, it profoundly influenced me, uh, made a huge impact on my thinking. And, and it came at the right time in my life and what's going on here at the church just to have my vision recommissioned and restored, uh, not restored, it wasn't lost, but it was made clearer. And uh, uh, the power of the gospel and the power of the cross. And I I came back here more committed uh, uh, that we would not be complicated with ministry here at Fellowship. And I came back here um, praying, God, please, may we not make secondary issues the primary issue May we keep the cross central in what we do, and may we be preachers of the gospel and preachers of the cross, uh, and doing whatever we can to uh, introduce people to Jesus Christ. And, and it, was, it was just an incredible time. Um, thank you for praying last Tuesday. There was a conference within the conference. There was something called the Global uh, Executive Leadership uh, Conference that I was a part of. And um, I was honored and highly honored to be asked not only to be a part of that, it was a 100-plus leaders from all over the world. Uh, these are key people and influencers uh, um, uh, who give uh, considerable resources to help further the gospel. They asked me to speak to the gathering on Tuesday, and uh, thank you for your prayers. I sense God's presence, and he, and he used that. And, uh, and so once I finish processing, I'll come back to you as a church in terms of what all this means. you got to know when I do these things, when I travel— it's, it's as a representative of Fellowship Bible Church, and I'm always thinking about, God, what do you want us to do differently? Uh, what are you saying to my heart that's transferable to our work here and to the body here? And so I'm not prepared right now to tell you everything because I'm not so sure that I've gotten down to the bottom of it yet. But uh, the Lord just met us in great, great, wonderful ways, and it was just awe-inspiring, unbelievable, awe-inspiring. I just... The price that people pay to preach the gospel, it uh, puts me to shame when I think of the excuses and all the other stuff. It was just pretty remarkable. Another thing I want to let you uh, know about the burden of my heart. Um, I've really missed you all, and there's so many things that I want to share with you. Uh, we, we had a prayer meeting here uh, a few weeks ago, and uh, as we were in that prayer meeting, a number of us was here, Jeff and a few others, it was a smaller gathering. Um, while we were sitting there and we were praying about some of our folks who were out of work and this kind of thing, I just had this incredible burden um, that as a body that we should come together and really intentionally uh, pray for one another, especially those who are struggling with jobs, they're unemployed or they're underemployed, and, and the pressure is there. And so here's what I like to do. The second Wednesday of November, I'd like to fill this entire church up with all of us here coming together to pray for those who are out of work or they're underemployed. And uh, this, is not, this is not some gimmick to fill up the church. And I perfectly understand, you know, uh, many of us travel. There are other things going on in our lives. It's not a litmus test for spirituality. But I think it would be a significant thing just visually for those who are here who are trying to find jobs, who are trying to find work, to see the body of Christ come together as one unit to pray for each other and to hold each other up before the Lord. And so I want to encourage you, if you can change your calendar uh, on the second Wednesday of November, uh, I want to encourage you to be here, and let's just beseech the God of heaven
to work in a great way. The enemy can use downsizing and the, you know, the lack of resources to cause kids to get bitter and uh, throw grenades into marriages and relationships, and we certainly don't want to see that. And so let's just come together and seek God's face that he will do something significant for us. Amen? Amen. I want you to meet me in, in Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. Shane spoke last week. We were kind of tag-teaming here and uh, doing a brief little two-part series on, on the family. And whenever you don't do a whole smorgasbord, uh, longer series on the family, somebody feels left out. And, uh, and so, but I want you to take it this way, that we, we are really doing a framework on the family. I've entitled this message today, Our Homes, God's Hope. Our Homes, God's Hope. There's an old line, uh, I've kind of brokered it and changed it a little bit, uh, that says, we plant trees for the next generation to enjoy. We plant trees for the next generation to enjoy. That word picture really summarizes the biblical emphasis on family. The real biblical emphasis on family is that it's always about what's ahead of you and not what's behind you. Only in the sense that what's behind you should fuel what's in ahead of you. As you read about family and you read about relationships in the home, from Genesis to Revelations, there's this leaning forward. There's this passing forward. You don't raise your children to make you happy. You don't raise kids so they grow up to take care of you. That's one of the biggest mistakes that I find couples make. They set their hopes and their dreams on their kids and they vicariously live through their children thinking that payday's coming and these kids live for me. No, no, you did not plant that tree that it would bear fruit for you. You planted that tree, you watered that tree, you cultivated that tree, you dug around that tree, you pruned that tree with the understanding that the shade that that tree would produce and the fruit that that tree would produce would be for them. So they could scurry out and plant another tree for the next generation. And that's what this whole idea of family in home is really all about. It is not about my kids taking care of me. It's about me preparing them for the next generation. And so I've just basically summarized what I really think that the entire Bible is emphasizing when it comes to these, these relationships. God intended that there should be a generational connection between himself and every succeeding generation. Now here's something that I want you to take note. The reason why we have so much hell in our households and the reason why there's so much pain in our homes and the reason why families are falling apart and the reason why your kids make these scud missile decisions and, and rebel and have these prodigal parentheses, all of this stuff is because it's a plan of the enemy. The truth of the matter is the best way of destroying the work of God in the world is to <laughs> remove the power and influence of God in the home. So it should be no surprise to you when the enemy attacks your family, when the enemy attacks your marriage. That is the number one, the number one strategy in the devil because he understands that God has a forward thinking, and we'll see this in a moment, strategy to impact future generations. Now I want to give you two anchor perspectives that everything that I say today will rest upon. One is this. 
and I, please understand this, one is that the whole reason and purpose of marriage and the family in the Bible is to steward God's purposes from one generation to the next. If you want to summarize the whole reason and purpose for marriage and the family in the Bible, that's it. It's to steward God's purposes from one generation to the next. Sorry, uh, it wasn't just for companionship that you got married, although that's a good thing. It wasn't just because you met somebody that's going to pay your bills, although that's a good thing. The real, the real vision, the real reason why you got married is to steward God's purposes from one generation to the next. Well, we can't have children. Well, there's more ways of multiplying a godly heritage than being able to have biological children. You can still influence one generation to the next. And the second thing I like to say, this comes out of the first one, and I say this to young couples sometimes just before they, they say I do, and you should see them glaze over because they cannot believe this. But the second thing is this. Your marriage is not about you. Your marriage is about a time you cannot see. And that's the bottom line. And I say this with more confidence now that I'm a grandfather than ever before. I realize the truth of this. On May 22nd, 1971, when Karen and I said, I do, we thought it was all about us. We thought it was about our happiness. We thought about, it was about a number of things. That, and we had all these dreams for us. But the truth of the matter is it was never really about us, only in the sense that a healthy marriage sets you up to make a powerful legacy for succeeding generations. It's always about what is next. Now, several weeks ago, I made the observation when I was talking about leadership that God established three institutions in society. Three institutions in society. He established the family. He established civil government. And he established the church. Those are the three primary institutions that God has established in all of human history. Now, check this out. The, the, the family is first not only in terms of it taking place first, but it's first also in order of primacy. Primacy. The condition of the family will reflect, the, con uh, the condition of the nation will reflect the condition of its families. The family is primary. It is the primary relationship in all of life. Leadership in society is affected by the health of the home. What takes place in almost every entity of a culture and a society hinges upon what is happening in your home. It's an amazing, an amazing thing. Now, basically today, I want to say three things. This is going to be sort of a broad sweeping message, but I, I, I felt led to do this today because I think what happens in our homes is that we take slivers of these issues on the family. We all talk about communication. Well, you can talk about communication or talk about how to manage your money as a family. You can talk about that or talk about how to discipline your children. Well, we can talk about that and we will do some of those wonderful transactional messages because there's emphasis in the Bible. But I think we need to step back and take a broad look at the theology of home and family. So I want to say these three broad things from the Bible about our homes and our families. One is I want to talk about vision. Secondly, I want to talk about the environment that is to be set in our homes. And thirdly, I want to touch on process. In other words, how do you, how do, you do these things? What are the elemental, uh, elementary things, basic things that we need to uh, be doing in our homes. The first is vision. 
I want you to take a look at Genesis chapter 1, verses 27 and 28. This is, in essence, the theology of the family. This is the theology of the family wrapped up in these two verses. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, God says through Moses, so God, in verse 27, created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now, in order to understand these two verses, or for me to say what I need to say about these two verses, there are other ways of understanding them, I want to point out that there are three things, three things, three things in these two verses that God seems to be saying. He says, number one, there is representation. Number two, there are roles. And number three, there are responsibilities. Representation, roles, and responsibility. First of all, there's representation. When God repeats himself, it's time for us to stop and listen. Now listen, he says in verse 27, so God created ex nihilo, out of nothing he created. Uh, man did not evolve, okay? Ex nihilo. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. It's as if God says, I want you to get this. I want you to get this, get this, get this. I created man not to try to discover who he is. I didn't create you so you would go on this journey of trying to find out from one generation to the next how we can put a composite picture of identity together that is unique to mankind. No, God created man with a sense of identity. He created him with definition. Don't, don't miss this. Don't miss God created man with definition. You don't have to figure it out. You, you don't have to try to become something. No, he says, in the image, kabash is the Hebrew word, in the image of God, he created them. In the image of God, he created them. God created us with a commissioning in mind. He created us with a calling in mind. And although this is an overused word these days, he created us with a destiny in mind. It's called the image of God. Now, the word, I'm sorry, I, I said kabosh. That is not image. The word image is selem. Kabosh comes later. I'll explain that. Selem means likeness, pattern, or model. Likeness, pattern, or model. Uh, to, to bear God's image means that we share in his nature who and what he's like. Now, don't hear me as saying that we're little gods. There is this heresy going on today that says, particularly as we, this, the prosperity gospel really, really taps into this, that we are little gods. That is, that, is, that is so not what this text is saying. So not what it is saying. So not what it's saying. However, the image of God that is stamped on us has something to do with his likeness. What God is like. He did not create little deities 
That's not the point. Or else there would be billions of people part of the, if I can use the expression, the Trinity. That's not what he's talking about. But he's, he's talking about a likeness, a, a commonality that we share with the God of the universe in terms of our, our nature. Uh, it's what he is like. It's, it's his life. It's uh, his personality. And I, uh, you, you, you get confused and a li- you, you're left a little empty when you read the commentaries and scholars on the image of God because I've not read one in all these years that I've been studying that adequately explains this whole concept of image. It is deep. It is not just personality that we have an intellect and emotion and will. It's far beyond that. Uh, it, it has to do with our creativity. It has to do with our wisdom and even vestiges of holiness in the sense that we have a conscience. And this whole idea of the image bearers of God is profound. And that's how he created us in his image. Now, the image of God is imparted to humans. And please, animal lovers, I know you're going to get upset with me, but it's not given to Fido. I know you love Fido and Spot and Kitty Queen and all the rest, and I know that you love them more than you love your husband sometimes. And I know that you're upset, and you bury little Kitty Queen in the backyard saying that I'll see you on the other side. Now, Randy Alcorn and I don't necessarily agree with this. He says that they might be in heaven. Well, maybe I will see uh, snowball my spits that I grew up with, but I doubt it. No, no, no. No other living creature bears Selim. You, you, you need to mire in that for a second. No other human creature Bears Selim. None. The image of God. God is so emphatic, he says it twice. We represent his image. Now don't don't fall asleep yet. You later on you can, but I gotta you, you gotta get to this next one. To be created in the image of God is a commissioning, is to represent who God is from one generation to the next. That's why he created us in his image. That is the whole reason for family. That's the whole reason for marriage, okay? There's movement involved in family. There's movement involved in marriage. That's the reason why we live and die. 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 Only the eternal image, Selem, goes on. Selem goes on. Selem goes on. And we are commissioned to bear that image from one generation to the next. I wish we would teach more on this. For this is the stuff of endurance and perseverance in bad situations. Selem. We bear that image. We share it in his nature and we reflect his nature. It's like a mirror like a mirror. Future generations, my grandsons and Quentin, Miles, Jaden, Jackson, my granddaughters, Lonnie, Ashlyn, Brianna, 
Long after Karen and I were gone, Mimi and Papa, they're gone. But look, they love Jesus. Selem. Selem. His image. <laughs> now, roles. This is a prof- These two verses are amazing. Listen, listen. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God is, is emphasizing identity here. First, first, he created all of us in his image, Salem. We bear the image of God on our souls. Uh, we don't exactly know what all that means, but there's something of God that ought to be lasting and passed on from one generation to the next. And now he talks about roles, male and female. I, I could get sidetracked in this, but I don't want to go there too much, and it does warrant a message on roles. But suffice it to say this. We experience the full force of our identity and fulfillment when we embrace who we were made to be. This is where we we must be critical thinkers in our culture. Please, for heaven's sake, for heaven's sake, don't buy the company line that this culture tries to tell us, that there is no such thing as a distinguishing distinctive between male and female. The reason why we've gotten so confused in our society is that we have this androgynous definition running around that there's no difference. Now, certainly, don't hear me as saying that men are better than women. If you heard me speak the other week on this whole idea of, of, uh, of, of uh, women in the church, you understand I'm not coming from there. And I'm not talking about the discrimination that takes place out there in the workforce when a woman does the same job as a man and she gets paid less. I think that's unjust and awful. But I am talking about that there are positive distinctions. There's something about maleness that is right. And God wants me to celebrate being who he made me to be, a man. There's something about femaleness that is right and wonderful. And God wants every woman to celebrate the uniqueness of that role. And the reason why we have so much role confusion in our homes is because mama and daddy don't always know who they are themselves. So rather than finding it out, we legitimize the dysfunction. Here, God says, the the implication is, is that this salem tends to be passed on in a healthy way through two people who are married who know who they are and they celebrate that and together they're able to impact future generations and we need to stop competing with each other and start complimenting each other. Now, thirdly, there's responsibility right here. He says in verse 28, and God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. I want you to see the progression here. He creates man in his own image. Male and female, he creates them. And now he gives them responsibility, a calling. 
what they do down here, how they steward Selem in the context of human history. Uh, there are three responsibilities mentioned here. One is that they are to fill the earth. The implication is that they're to fill the earth with his representatives. They're to fill the earth with his representatives. God is always about getting the glory from human existence. And the reason why, Crawford, you were created in my image to begin with is because I want that image to be born. I want it to be clean. I want other people to see it. And so you, 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 you fill the earth. And even if you're married and let's say that there's some fertility issues and you cannot have children, you still can fulfill this. There are other kids who need to be adopted. There are other people who need to be influenced. Even if you're single, You've got nieces and nephews in situations. They come from dysfunctional backgrounds. They need to see a visible model. In that sense, you can multiply and fill the earth. The second responsibility is to subdue the earth. Now, this is the Greek or Hebrew word kabosh. I misspoke before. Subdue the earth. Now, I hope I don't offend some more, uh, shall I say, more passionate environmentalists than I happen to be by this next statement. But I think we need to look at this text very closely and be very careful of, of swallowing the medicine from our culture here. He's, the word kibosh means to subject, to bring into line. He says, fill the earth and subdue it, to bring it into line. The point is this, the earth is not the height of God's creation, man is. Don't, don't miss this. If you have a Judeo-Christian ethic and worldview, then you must conclude that the earth is not the height of God's creation. Man is. We are not here to serve Mother Earth. The earth is here to serve us. And if you continue to refer to the earth as Mother Earth, then, you know, there, there is a sense of idolatry that is there. Oh, you, you're looking at me strange. Look at uh, uh, Psalm, Psalm 8. I'll just read this. This is a short psalm, and I want to read this psalm. Uh, this underscores God's view of, 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 of creation order and who's primary. Psalm 8 says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. Now read verse 6. Listen to this. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. God has called us. To take dominion over this earth, to, to subdue it. Now, thirdly, the third calling here in terms of our responsibility, now here's the balance, is to manage the earth. Subdue has the idea to subject it, to bring it in line. The word translated dominion has the idea of managing or controlling the earth and its resources. It is a stewardship responsibility. 
And it is true that believers ought to be the best environmentalists in this case. That we don't destroy the earth. We don't pollute the environment. We manage it. Now, we don't make it a deity. We call it Mother Earth and, and this kind of thing. But we are placed here to, to, bring, to bring order and to be good stewards of the resources, the natural resources that we have. Don't go to the other extreme and just start polluting everything. We're called to subdue it, to manage the earth. Now, before we get off Genesis 1, 27, 28, I also want you to notice in these two verses God's order of priority. If you're confused about priority or where work takes place or your relationship with your wife or your relationship with your children or, your, or, or any of these things, it is quite clear right here in the text. Here are the four priorities that every individual should have. Number one, God is first. In the image of God, he created them. God is first. That's the first, first thing. Your wife is not first. Your kids are not first. Your job is not first. God is first. Secondly, the marriage comes next. He says, male and female, he created them. The inference there is that the relationship between husband and wife is in the second position. Children are not in the second position. And whenever you make your child or your children more important than your husband or your wife, you're doing two very dangerous things. Very dangerous things. Number number one, number one is that you're delaying the impact of dysfunction. Because sooner or later that marriage is going to go down the toilet. Excuse my frankness. And and number two, what you're doing is you're giving your children a distorted view of priorities. The reason why the couple is first in the marriage is that it should model to the children what healthy relationships look like. So that's, the children come third. Then obviously, fourthly, is work. What you do. God, the marriage, the children, and work. Now I need to hustle on here. That's the vision. Now, secondly, what is, the, what is the environment to be set in a home? What, 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 what does it look like? I, uh, I want to give you an assignment because I don't have time to do this right now. But I want you to go, back, go home and find a Bible concordance and look up the word or the expression, the fear of the Lord. And I want you to trace how the fear of the Lord is used You can go all over the Bible, but particularly in Proverbs and the book of Psalms. I'm going to make a suggestion here that that, uh, might sound strange to some. But I think think that the the best environment in a home, where, where the whole idea of passing on the image of God, Selem, from one generation to the next, is a home that is permeated with the fear of God. You got Crawford. Come on, man. What do you want? Fear? You want my kids to grow up scared of God? That doesn't make any sense. You want them terrified of God? That's my fear. Uh, that's because we don't understand the biblical concept of fear. Now, I don't want to go to the other extreme. Some of my friends who write on marriage and the family, I think, have gone to the other extreme and they. 
say, well, the fear of God doesn't mean literal fear. I think there is some fear, and I think there's some literal fear there. I do. But I, 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 think, I think as you as you read the concept of fear, particularly in the Old Testament, it's always in the, uh, the, the idea of awe. It is the idea of being struck by incredible greatness. There's a sense of reverence. In the homes that, that, that are committed to Salem, there's this environment of the awe-inspiring greatness and power of God. Ah, I could trace this through the Bible. And our kids need to grow up in a context where they, 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 they have sensed the awe-inspiring greatness of the presence of God through answered prayer and all of his attributes. In fact, in fact, in fact, I think the best way of teaching the fear of God is to teach the attributes of God to your children. From the time they're little something, Help them to appreciate God's biography, that he is omnipotent, all-powerful, that he is omniscient, all-knowing, that he is omnipresent everywhere at one time, that he is holy, absolutely pure, that he is just, that he is righteous, that he is merciful, that he is loving. And you keep doing that in the context of your home, and they become big God people. That's what I mean by fear. That's what I mean by fear. They begin to understand the nature of the awesome God of the universe and his tenderness that reaches out to them. And that's what Psalm 128 is all about. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. And then verse 4 says... Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. And sandwiched in between those two verses, (laughs) unbelievable, it's provision, production, and promise. And I'm not going to comment on them, but I'll just read them. Verse 2 says, if you fear the Lord, you shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. That's provision. You shall be blessed and it shall be well with you. That's production. And then promise, your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. I think that, I think he's talking about fulfillment there. And your children will be like olive shoots around your table. That is the idea of budding fruitfulness for future generations. Yeah, all of that takes place. Why? Because you fear God. You fear him. You fear him. You don't casually talk about God in your home. You honor him. And I think that's the missing thing in Christian homes. I think that's missing in our homes. We need to study who he is and keep him at that rightful place. Finally, as I land a plane here, What's, what's the process? I'm going to give you several verses. You'll see them up on the screen here. Titus 2, 1 through 8, and um, Psalm 78, 5 through 7, and Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, and 
Deuteronomy 6, 1 through 9. These are just classic major texts of the Bible. But if I would, if I would distill the essence of these texts in terms of what this looks like in our homes, I would say to parents... What he's actually saying is that, parents, we have to intentionally model and reflect the image of God. We, we have to be the image bearers. They need to see it in us. We hold that standard up. Because as I said a few weeks ago, remember I was talking about leadership? One of the irrevocable principles of leadership in the Bible is that you become the desired destination at which others should arrive. My, my youngest son called me several weeks ago. We have a granddaughter, his, his, his firstborn, his two little girls, uh, Lonnie. Her name is Lalani. We call her Lonnie. Lonnie is very precocious. I mean, she, that girl is something else. She's uh, three years old. Brendan was telling me he was walking with Lonnie across the lawn over to the church. They live in the parsonage and. And as they were walking, Lonnie just said, Daddy, Daddy, look at me. And Brenda said, I looked at her dad, and she said, Daddy, look at me. So, Lonnie, I'm looking at you. She said, Daddy, look at me. And they were walking, and he said, I'm looking at you. She said, you don't see? What are you talking about, Lonnie? She said, I'm walking just like you. Hmm. Daddy, look at me. Look at me. And we need to hold his hand so that Selem. And then for the children, we need to do three major things as we're raising our kids. Now, I need to tell you this there are no guarantees, okay? And if you read a book that says that they guarantee that your kids will turn out a certain kind of way, you can come to my yard and have a book-burning ceremony. <laughs> okay, so let's, let's not go there. But I, I, I want to I I encourage us as parents and for those of us who are influencing the next generation, number one, shape their character. Shape their character, who they are. You do this through the Word of God. You do this through godly influences in their lives. But do it with consistency. Now, I'm going to get really down on the bottom shelf here. I, I, I want to say, and this comes through my experience, and Karen and I have failed along these lines. We've had some successes. But I want to say there are three things as parents that you've got to pay close attention to as, you do, as your kids are growing up. These three things. Number one, pay attention to lying. Lying. Do not put up with lying. Don't put up with lying. Lying is a terrible thing. It weaves patterns of deception that sets them up for addictive behavior and not being able to see reality. And as soon as possible, you attack lying. Don't say it's cute. Deal with lying. Number two, disrespect. It's very important that we deal with disrespect. It's a character issue. You say, what's the big deal about that? Well, because disrespect really, really is driven by pride and arrogance. And number three, uh, blatant disobedience. Patterns of blatant disobedience sets them up to not be able to respond properly to authority. And they're all other assortment issues, but Karen and I, through the years, and counseling with other couples, we have found these to be the, the three biggies in terms of character development that we have to go after. Number two, monitor their conduct, how they behave. 
shape their character, monitor their conduct, how they behave. Give them great affirmation for right choices. And I got to tell you, most of us do a lousy job of affirming our kids. Most of us do a terrible job of affirming them. I mean, we're on them like white on rice when they screw up, but uh, affirm them, uh, applaud them, celebrate right choices, celebrate the, the, the good decisions that they've made, affirm those things. But on the other hand, I got to tell you, give them quick, swift, and clear consequences when they make bad choices. Too many of us are afraid of our children. We're afraid that they're going to say, I don't like you. But consequences is their best friend. Their best friend. And to withhold consequences from your child is abusive. Each time, their wrong choices. Do it with mercy, do it with gentleness, but please, please, make sure the consequences are meted out. And then thirdly, point them toward their calling where they're going. Give them vision. Karen and I happen to believe that this is more important. This, is, this, this should take place before the other ones. I happen to believe that, that when you give your child a sense of vision, help them with a sense of calling, even though they may not know what it is and you don't know what it is, but you plant seeds in their heart and mind when they're three, four, five years old, that there's something special that God has in store for you. It allows you to speak to the issues of character and conduct more clearly. You, you're going somewhere, and how does this behavior help you to get there? Calling. They bear the image of God. And there's something that God wants done in and through their lives. And I have to say this. Parents, that means we have to model calling. We have to model that vision. I close with this. One of the most moving presentations that I heard the whole time I was in South Africa at the Congress was from a woman who gave her testimony. Uh, she was the wife of the doctor who was headed up this 10-member missionary, medical missionary team in Afghanistan, and you recall a couple of months ago, they were brutally murdered. She shared, as she was telling the story, she held up a piece of paper, and she said, these are the notes that my husband prepared when he gave the devotional talk the morning that they were killed. And when she held it up, there were his blood stains on the note. And I said to myself, she needs to preserve that and show her children and her grandchildren and their children and whisper in their ears, Honey, live for what really matters. And that's the only reason why we bear Salem. And folks, that's what the family is all about.
Let's stand together. I'm going to ask our elders and shepherding elders and leaders in our church, if you will come up front right now. I'm going to close in prayer. Um, yes, and the wives too. I, 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 want to, I want to close in prayer. But I know that some of us here are hurting. We've got kids who have made bad choices, made their struggles in the marriage, and there are issues. Karen and I know what that's about too. And if you want somebody to pray for you today, uh, you don't have to tell us what it is. We want to pray for you. We want to hold you up before the Lord. And, uh, and I want to encourage you to pray for the families in our church. Some of the folks sitting next to you right now, they're hurting big time, and you don't even know about it. Pray for the families of our church. Pray that the power of God will be released in these homes. Pray that God will call prodigals home. Pray that we will step up as men and women in our household and really represent what a walk in relationship with God looks like. Father, thank you for your presence. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for the power of God. Thank you, O oh God, that you have called us to plant trees. <laughs> to plant trees. So that future generations can sit in the shade and eat the fruit. Lord, help us not to fail in our watch. Keep the vision alive, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.